Hello and welcome to another episode of The Trading Desk. My name is Joshua Thanos, and today I have a very special guest, a friend of mine, and a, uh, a very famous character now these days. It's Michael Manjos. Hey, Mike, how are you? Hey, Josh. Thanks for having me again. I love doing this with you. Awesome, awesome. Well, I appreciate you making the time. I know uh, you are traveling. You're not back in Philly. You're in uh, Las Vegas <laughs> these days. Back in Vegas these days for a couple of days, but I'll be back in Philly on Tuesday to, to film Market Wrap. So. Oh, Lord. We'll never right. miss well, a yeah, week. You- yeah, you and I have spent some time together in Philly, or in, uh, in well, Philly also, but in Vegas, we've had, we've I've made had. some of those trips with you, which I uh, I was just reminiscing on with my wife actually, because we I took her one of those trips one time. That was a lot of fun. But uh, it's IWJG, fun yeah, IWJG. It's just it's nice to see the guys. It's nice to get a feel of the market. Um, you know, outside of our world, uh, you know, you get guys international, you get a lot of guys from across the country, and just to you know sit and have dinner and understand what everybody else is seeing. It's always, always pick up something at these shows. Oh yeah. Well, that's one thing I always say is that like I got, when you came on board, what was it? I guess 2017, right? Yep. And I got to, you invited me to come to some of these shows for about a year. Um, I went to all the shows with you. Um, and I got like my level of knowledge and respect for the entire industry and understanding the industry because I had a very narrow view of things through like the watch you want Godberg watch box, you know, view of how things went. Um, so, you know, you definitely broadened my horizon in regards to the uh, the watch world and, and getting a definitely a better understanding of it in general. So I thank you for that. You know, it's my pleasure. It's good to everybody to get out and meet them, as many people as you can, because, again, everyone's got a different perspective. Everyone specializes in something else. That's how you learn is just by hanging out with guys who are experts in their particular thing. You know, you do it on the Panerai side as good as anybody. You know, I do some of the vintage stuff, you know, that because because I was around when it was happening. So it's just it's great to pick everybody's brains. That's how we all get better. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, you realize that we're not the only game in town, even though some people might. <laughs> oh, absolutely not. I know. I love that. Everybody's like, well, you guys do this and you do this. It's like uh, we're a big player, but there's a lot of big players in the world. So don't kid yourself. That's right. Yeah, exactly. So. All right. Well, uh, again, I appreciate you uh, you taking the time to join me for today's podcast. So uh, let's start with today's uh, with the customary risk check. Uh, Mike, what do you got on the wrist? I am wearing my uh, typical daily driver, my Rolex Batman, the original version. Um, I beat the hell out of this, especially traveling. I love the watch. It's just balanced for me. It never really comes off the wrist unless I'm getting dressed for something, but that's less and less these days. So um, I love the GMT. I love the colors. I'm a blue guy. It's perfect. I just love Rolex. Yeah. Great watch. It's uh, certainly – you definitely have equity in that one these days. Yes, I do. Um, yeah, that's that's a, actually I have a buddy of mine looking for the original version. So if you decide to move move on from it, I think I got a buyer for you. <laughs> <laughs> Never gonna happen. Yeah, I know that. So all right, cool. Well, I am taking a test drive on a white gold forty two millimeter yacht master on the Oysterflex um, bracelet. I I am uh, surprisingly uh, I'm surprised at how much I like this watch. Um, you know, I never really liked the Oysterflex. So this one is the reference two two six six five nine. Um, this was the, the first 42 and the only 42 millimeter yacht master. So there's, there's what a 37, a 40, and then they have the 44 of the yacht master two. Now they have the 42s, which if I had to guess, they're going to expand this line. I think they have to, um, but it's, it's definitely underrated and in white gold, 
with the black bezel insert and the black dial and the black strap. It's very stealthy. It's uh, it's one that you know I didn't expect it to be as cool. So it it wears a lot like a sub, but it's even it's less flashy than a sub, even because you don't have that uh the big the the steel bracelet. So it's it's a it's an awesome watch. It wears fantastic. It's got heft to it, but it's well balanced. And because you have the glide lock on the clasp, it actually you can get it to fit your wrist perfectly. Because that was my biggest complaint on the uh, on the um, the Oyster Flex for the 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 Daytonas. Daytonas well, right. number one, it makes the watches wear smaller, which for whatever reason this one doesn't really wear smaller. But I mean, it looks like it's 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 like a stealth wealth watch. Like this is a watch where hey, I'm buying what I like. I'm wearing a even though I'm wearing a Rolex, it's one that I like, and it's not one that. I'm not flashy about it, but if somebody sees it, yeah, they're going to like, they're going to know what it is. It's a great piece. I love the 42s. It's funny because I've always felt Daytona's were a little small and that Yachtmaster coming just a couple millimeters bigger black makes it look smaller, but it's just, it's a great balance on it. I'm hoping they expand the 42s and eventually we see a few more things in 42. Yeah. I mean, I can, it, it makes sense that they would make this in the, in the rose gold, like they make the forties and like, it just, I feel like they would have to have to do it. Absolutely. Yeah. Because a forty at this point on that on the Oyster Flex is almost like a ladies' watch, or it's like a more of an in betweener because it it does wear smaller. It does so, wear smaller on the Oyster Flex for whatever reason. You're no question about it. Yeah, but I'm I'm definitely uh, I'm lusting about this watch right now. I think it's it's fantastic. So, um, but <laughs> this not is looking. not the <laughs> exactly. I'm going to run out of the house. So um, today's topic is not Rolex though. Uh, even though I guess technically it could be, and that's one of the things yeah. I wanted to bring up because I know we're talking mm-hmm. independence, and yeah. you know one of the interesting things in my world is like, what do you quantify today as an independent? Because you know when I think of independence, I'm always thinking boutique brands, as right. I call them, like very small, very independent, you know, almost small businesses. But you know, Paddock, Rolex, and AP are truly all independent. Yeah. Um, and some of the most amazing brands and have really been much more successful over the past few years than the groups have been. Oh, yeah. Without a, without doubt. a doubt. So, you know, independents yeah. have definitely come along in every format. I know that's probably not the topic we're hitting today, but, you know, Rolex is, you know, the most independent people you'll ever want to meet. They do whatever they want to do. They don't really <laughs> listen to their dealers. They don't listen to the market. They are truly independent. I give them that. That's right. Well, they even well, there was a recent press release that said something about about how uh, the the determination on who gets the watches is solely on their dealers, <laughs> not them. Yeah, they this is the don't bus. call the us right under the bus on that one, though. I mean, it's true. It's true. It's, it's true, absolutely but, true. But yeah. it was funny to see it in writing. Absolutely. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, they're, they're getting queasy about things too. But so yeah, so you touched on it. today's topic is investable independence, right? So it's an alliteration, and it's also a great topic to talk about with you. So. Um, and you know, listen, man, I, we didn't discuss anything before we started recording. So, uh, if you want to talk about Rolex AP and paddock, I mean, they certainly are investable independence and I mean, people are definitely taking advantage, but, um, the idea for today's show is more about what are the, so Jorn is the one that everybody looks at. They blame Watchbox Correct. For, for pumping up the brand, even though. You know, we're not the ones spending the most money on these watches. We didn't buy them at auction for a million dollars or anything like that, right? So, you know, the 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 brand has merit, and that's kind of what we saw, I guess, even you know, five, six, seven years ago, um, that the brand was it was it had everything um, in regards to a watch that should be worth more 
or it should at least be trading at its retail price. But at least um, at that point, and, you know, we even discussed it in the past, but, you know, it was, uh, it, they were underpriced through retail. Without right? a doubt. They were underpriced. I mean, I was a, I was a Jorn dealer uh, when I was with Betteridge before Watchbox. Um, we had a, an Aspas uh, in Vail, so we got black label pieces. And they were not easy to sell, uh, especially since we were a paddock dealer. Um, that, you know, it was hard to take somebody out of a paddock and get them into a Jorn. Uh, even though the finish was amazing, the quality was great, the movements were very special in a lot of cases. Um, it was just a very unknown brand and it just didn't have that following. Um, but everybody who loved it and saw it really did appreciate it. And, you know, we got to give Danny credit because he really went in with both feet. And I even remember four years ago when I started, you know, one of the first things I saw was he personally bought himself a steel set. Um, and I thought he was crazy for spending the money he did and he put for himself and put it away. I mean, he was personally bought in. So everybody's like, yes, he's manipulated and this and that. And no, he just really believed that they were truly rare. And once Jorn started sharing production numbers, which was Danny's idea, not a lot of people know that, but he went to Jorn and said, you guys should be touting from the rooftops that you only make six or 700 watches. You know, traditionally, Swiss watchmakers – um, are Swiss and they're very conservative and they don't like to talk about their business and they don't like people knowing their business, uh, which is traditional Swiss gentleman kind of stuff. But, you know, a lot of people don't realize how small some of these brands are. And when you start thinking about it, you know, there's only 800 Jorns made in the biggest year. It's only been 20 something years. So there's, you know, there's less than 20,000 Jorns ever made. And then when you start getting into specific references, you know, in a particular year, he might have made two or three of an optimum in platinum. Uh, Resonances were rare. He did a lot of special editions and dials. So, you know, the number of pieces are very rare. And all you need is two or three guys to decide that, hey, I want this particular piece that they only made three of last year. And it's it should trade stronger than it was. They were definitely well undervalued. And we saw that and invested in it. So, I mean, I. I love when people start trying to, you know, make a deal out of it. It's like, come on, you're just mad because you didn't think of it and Dana did. And now, you know, the market now is completely out of our hands. Um, You know, when we see the auction, you know, every single watch at the last auction brought well above the high estimate. Yeah. So, I mean, nobody can now say that it's anything but the market valuing them for what they value them at. And this was typical of a lot of independents. I mean, there was a lot of brands – you know, not that they were all independent, but even when new brands came out as part of the groups, you know, when the longas came back, you know, they were hard to sell and they're still discounted. But some of these smaller brands that are still out there now, people are realizing, hey, maybe this is the next Jorn um, because they saw what happened with Jorn and everybody now knows what's happened with Jorn. It's, you know, it's become such a talked about subject. So now I think a lot of people are like us going, OK, what else do we like? And yeah. first of all, if you don't love the product, uh, what no matter how rare it is, it's never going to be the the favorite thing. Like I remember always admiring when I was at Betteridge, next door to us was uh, Manfredi, and we were very good friends. And he basically would take every brand that we didn't have, which was all of the kind of eccentric brands at the time, 
And I would go look at some of the, you know, he was a big MBNF guy. He was a big Irwerk guy. He was a big Laurent Ferrier guy. And I would go look at some, a lot of these things and admire them. And like the MBNFs I thought were some of the coolest things I've ever seen, but would never want to wear one because they were just too funky for me. Yeah. Looks like a, like a, like a spaceship on your wrist. Yeah. Some of those spaceships. I mean, when you looked at the mechanics and got behind the mind of Max, um, it's incredible. And, you know, some of those clocks and the, you know, just the crazy stuff the guy did and still does is amazing. But then when he started doing, you know, the Legacies collection, I am so into that because I just think there's such a classic part of the brand. And that's a brand that I think only in the last six to 12 months, people are starting to say the same thing. It's like they were trading well under retail. In a lot of cases, he made, you know, a few dozen of the LM1s in different combinations um, and then did the evolutions with the perpetuals and some of the other brands and was worked with, you know, Voodoo did the LM one. I mean, it's like Max's thing was always bringing all these the watchmakers together, the best people together, which, you know, MBNF was Max Buser and friends. Not everybody mm-hmm. knows that. And his friends were all these watchmakers that he brought into it. Uh, you know, an incredible background, uh, very cool guy, you know, was always frustrated because uh, I've had a couple of conversations about the fact that, you know, his watches don't get the same respect on the secondary market. And now we're starting to see that change. So I think that's an, that's a, definitely a brand that people should de- dive deeper into because there's mm-hmm. still opportunities. Now, some of them are starting to trade, you know, at least close to retail, if not a little over on some of them. Uh, mm-hmm. There's one right now in a Christie's auction um, you know, titanium piece that made 28 of that's, of course I'm bidding. <laughs> <laughs> I got outbid though, but, uh, no. it's nice to see, yeah. but I did bid it, uh, cause it was, I thought it was a value. Now it's getting up into the, you know, 70 to 80 range, which is kind of, where I think where it should be. Sure. Well, that's good. You know, I mean, that's, I think that, well, you know, what we've seen over the last few years is like, you know, there's, there's been a, a more, a focus on, rarity like actual rarity right you know as as much as i like rolex and you do too we're both wearing them you know they make a million watches a year so in the realm of swiss watches i mean in the realm of like consumer goods a million i mean i mean i don't like so there's a panasonic tv next to me they probably made a million last month of those right right? so (laughs) but uh in the in the in the realm of swiss watches a million a year is is like an absurd amount which now is in the past used to be overproduction now is well under production, even though they haven't changed production. So we know that that's a, that's a demand thing, right? So since roughly what 2017 is really when we started, but we saw, uh, you know, uptick. So we're seeing a, an increase in demand in watches across the board. And then from the high end collectors, people are looking more towards looking for, you know, real watchmaking from real watchmakers and, you know, real rarity. Right. That's kind of so that that that's what brings us into the independence. So the way I view like whenever I'm talking about when I use the word independent, talking to other people in the trade, I think I'm I'm describing a brand that is uh, that is not part of a large conglomerate. Right. And that is makes probably less than five thousand watches in a year. I think that's correct. I think that's a fair. Exactly. I think that's exactly how I think of it as well. Um, you know, some of the ones that are on the edge there, like, you know, early days, you know, Frank Mueller was one of the first independent watchmakers, but he was a tiny guy and then got huge and then kind of fell out of favor. Um, 
just well, he because he got quality. so big. He dropped the quality. He got so That's big yeah. um, there. But also, I think what what happened with collectors is, you know, for years, if you went and bought a paddock and you held on to it, you did quite well. Yeah. And you knew you'd always have some thing of value. And the same thing really with AP and a little less with Vacheron, but you knew you were safe. If back in the day, if you went and bought a Jornet retail or you went and bought especially an MB&F or some of these odd small brands, there was no liquidity in the market. And right. if you wanted to get rid of it, you got killed. And guys don't forget that. So like the first time they try it and they get killed, they're like, I'm not going to do that again. Well, then now guys are learning just the opposite, where if you buy the right independent and hang on to it, um, a lot of the guys who bought Jorns early are making a fortune. And they're like, hey, what's the next? You know, not that they're doing it strictly to invest, but knowing that hey, I'm safe and I can possibly make some money on this after I enjoy it for a few years. Yeah. Well, the goal is to not lose your ass, right? Like that's that's, <laughs> that's the way I look at it. Right? Exactly. Yeah. People like don't so buy I mean, a haircut, well, nobody wants to get bloody here. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Like I remember a guy who called in back in like 2013 or so, and he told me that he was on a trip down in Fort Lauderdale to the boat show, and he bought him and his buddies all bought Yelise Narden. I don't remember the models, but he spent like he spent like 50k buying brand new Yelise Nardens at a booth at the right. boat show. When he sobered up and got home, he realized that he probably didn't need that watch and wanted to sell it. And I think at that point we were offering like twelve thousand bucks for the watch. Like it was <laughs> trading for like it was trading in like the high teens or maybe even low twenties. But there was a watch that maybe might might take a year to sell, right? To find that buyer, which is something I I, I have I've discussed in some of my other podcasts about. You know, it's not just about the margin; it's the liquidity of the watch is going to determine. You know. Right you know, how, how, how much a dealer can spend on it. But so, and, and like the guy like had a meltdown on the phone with me. And then I think he, he called back like a month later to talk to me about it, sort of apologizing for the meltdown. Cause he realized he had talked to other people and got other offers. I was the first person he called right. and like said, like, like, Hey, can we, you know, what, what can we do? Can I get a little bit more money on this? And I said, listen, man, I wish I could pay you more, but at this point there's no liquidity with this watch where nowadays with, with the amount of demand in the, in the market, it's an all boats rise. So almost everything is much more liquid than it was at that much time. Much more, without a doubt. But there's still opportunities. Like, you know, there's watches. If you buy a DeWitt for full retail, just don't buy a DeWitt for full retail. Full retail. No, don't do that. <laughs> yeah. Not no, an investable some independent. The, some of the, uh, you know, we've talked it over time. You know, I know we both like Laurent Ferrier. Okay. And, you know, I spoke to them a few months ago. Um specifically about their pre-owned values, because a lot of these brands want to understand the secondary market better. And we do have conversations with them. And, you know, they're one of the things is I didn't realize how few watches they make a year. You know, they're running at, you know, I think 140 or 150 a year, which is nothing. And less than 2000 of their watches in existence, I think. Right. Right. And they definitely trade, um, you know, considerably under retail. Um, 40% almost. Yeah, in a lot of cases, without a doubt. So, I mean, I think I think those watches, you know, some people argue that the retail's high. Um, okay, Maybe. Uh, you can make that point, but it's not crazy high in the comparisons to some of the other independents. So, I think I think that's a brand that you know it's got a distinct aesthetic um, that I really like. The quality of the movement, you can argue with, um, and it's an interesting story. So, I think you know, I think long term, I think that's a brand that I think represents a good value, even in today's market, um, yeah. which is kind of, 
you know, spiked in a lot of places. I mean, you know, the Vooden Landings of the world have taken off and those are trading well, you know, way very high and a lot of these smaller brands that you see. And I think it really started, you know, I know I'm digressing, but like you take somebody like Dufour, who's probably the rarest of the rare independents because there's only a couple of hundred watches ever made. But they were always available kind of in that 150 to 200,000 range. And everybody was a little scared because they're small, they're three hands. You know, it's a lot of money for a three-hand 37-millimeter watch. Now that's not liquid. Right. And now it's a watch that's liquid at half a million dollars. And that's really changed a lot of the market as well. It's not just Jorn, but it's, you know, DeFour now walks around and can get him half a million dollars for any watch he ever made. It's Easily. nuts. Yeah. yeah. But that's the market. And now you're getting that reset. So now, you know, does a Laurent Ferry that's trading at 25000 seem like a bargain? I think in a lot of cases it is. Absolutely. Well, that's so this this is kind of what brought up this topic in my mind is that I have a good customer who uh, in the last two or three years, I mean, he's bought Jorns and sold Jorns in the past. He wishes he had all his Jorns that he bought in the past because he trades a lot. But uh, so he's got a Jorn. He's got two Mosers. Um, he has what else did he have? But so so but he's he's starting to invest more of his watch capital into um, independence. So we were talking about Laurent Ferrier, and it was it, the, basically the, the the decision came down to: Do I get another Royal Oak? Right, he's trading a Rolex. So does he get the a Royal Oak fifteen? I think it was a fifteen five hundred, right. or for in the same price range, get this Laurent Ferrier, right? Because we had talked about Laurent Ferrier many times before, and it just never like something else always beat it out, right? So he's had the he's had the Royal Oak a few times. Obviously, the Royal Oak is certainly more liquid right now. There's no Correct. question. Right for the same price, if he wants to sell the the Ferrier tomorrow, he's certainly going to be taking a, a much larger haircut than if he was selling that Royal Oak. And and if he holds the Royal Oak for three months, it might be it might be more than <laughs> And the Ferrier, I mean, we talked about it's probably I'd say minimum a two year hold in order to possibly get close to your money back, right? And that's 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 I think that's a conservative guess. So this is this is a watch that you have to if you believe in the brand and you love the watch. You know, and you hold on to it long enough, you should be able to get out at a decent um, clip. But there's no guarantees, right? So there's so that goes into the decision. So he gets the watch, and this is how it always works. I send him the watch. We, you know, we make the deal, whatever it is, he sends the watch, and if he doesn't love it, he'll send it back. Especially a watch like this, where it's where there's good consequence if he keeps it, right? Could be cost him, you know, a large percentage of his money. And he spent, I think, it ended up being right around in the forty thousand dollar range. So he gets the watch, and I don't hear from him all day. And I'm getting nervous. I'm like, oh, okay, he's going to send it back and we'll just do the AP, whatever. Right. So, so he calls me later on in the day. And he's on the West Coast. So it was like eight or nine o'clock my time. And I'm on the East Coast. So I was in Florida. So he, um, and he says, Josh, I had the craziest, busiest day. I took me an hour just to open the box, which never happens. Like I always open it immediately. I got this watch. I haven't taken it off since I, since, since I uh, opened the box. I think I'm absolutely in love with it. <laughs> Yeah, uh, that's it, fantastic. It, it's so wild. So, and then him and I geeked out about it, and things that I've never noticed about about that watch specifically. So, like the details on the dial, and one thing is that, like, so Laurent Ferry was a, was a race car driver, right? That's that's his background. That was that was one of the things he's done in his life, right? right. He's a car guy. So, we started talking about it, and we noticed that, like, the the font on the dial is like very much um, 
like almost like Ferrari-esque, right? So I look at the watch from afar and it looks like it's an older, like kind of an old man's watch. It's like very traditional. But number one, when I zero in on the font uh, uh, of the logo and, the, and his name, I'm like, okay, there's a little bit of edge there, right? It's like a little bit of a, like a car walk, car thing. And then I start looking at the hands and the indices. And I start noticing all these little things that like, so they're very aerodynamic. It reminds me of like, like a, a, a 1940s or 1950s race car where okay. everything's very smooth. And then he, so, so he tells me, he's like, listen, I have my streamliner. He's got a Moser streamliner, the, uh, the green liner, the, the right. green dragon, whatever you want to call it. He's got that. And he's got his, the Laurent Ferry. And he goes, I love the, the green liner. It's like one of my favorite watches. I wear it all the time. But if I compare the dials, the hands and the indices on the Laurent Ferrier make the Moser look like a Tissot. Like it's like the <laughs> level is so high. It's, that, was, that was his, <laughs> that was his quote. I but, like that. So, but it, it's so crazy that, you know, there's all these brands and that, and I mean, he's been looking at Laurent Ferrier's for probably four or five years. We've talked about him and it takes him to get the watch in his hand and get to a point where he can understand and feel comfortable to buy it, to start noticing all the amazing things about it. Right. Like, it's, so it's a marketing more. issue, right? With, with some of these brands, I feel like, because I believe that totally. And I think that's the other thing that the reason why independence suffered for so many years. And when I say suffered, um, you know, you got to realize, you know, a brand like Laurent Ferrier or MBNF or Orwork, you know, they're very small. They're making a few hundred watches a year. They're not generating a huge amount of cash. They're not generating a huge amount of profit. I mean, these guys are not getting rich making these watches. They do it because they love it. Um, but it also limited what they could do from a marketing standpoint, you know, what saved them is, you know, the Instagram world we live in and now it doesn't cost them anything to do social media. Right. So, you know, a brands like Gronfeld, which I love, but I also love the brothers and, you know, they're always out drinking beers, riding their bikes and, you know, wearing their watches and they're making 75 watches a year. So, you know, at 50, nobody knew that until two years ago. Right. Nobody knew anything about interviews. They, They did one with Tim. And like, thank God for Tim, because for some reason, all the watch watchmakers, they love Tim and like guys who won't do interviews with anyone else, they'll at least do it with Tim. With Tim, right. So that's fantastic. Or, uh, but yeah, Gronefeld is, is a, a tremendous example of a brand that overnight, like number one, it always had the same merit. They're still making the same watches that right. they did, you know, t- five years ago when they were trading at, you know, $20,000 know, when they're at a 50,000 retail, like same watches. Nothing changed there. Nothing changed there. They just, you know, social media took off. They became a little bit of darlings. Everybody realized what they've been doing all those years. And suddenly now, you know, they announced a month ago, you know, we're sold out indefinitely. Talk to us in a couple of years. (laughs) We're not taking any more orders. I mean, how cool is that? Uh, Fantastic. And then suddenly, of course, the secondary market spikes. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) yeah. Exactly. And a lot of people complain that like, you know, okay, you know, now I have to pay up to get one, but that's okay. I mean, these guys now, you know, hopefully do better. Hopefully they don't need to deal with as many, uh, you know, retailers. They can sell almost direct to consumers. They can keep a little bit more of that money for themselves. They can expand the business if they want to, or just keep it the way it is and, you know, do better. Um, It's just one of those things where these guys, you know, a lot of these small brands, you know, went out of business over the years because, you know, they couldn't make money and they couldn't afford to continue. And investors got grumpy about it. Well, now, you know, some of the small brands are getting investors. People are putting money in and feeling comfortable that they can, 
you know, be run profitably. And yeah. that's really I mean, just because they're selling out everywhere. Well, the, the, the biggest part of that, in my opinion, is because there's so many watchmakers that make just tremendous watches, right? Like who are artisans and who are making like amazing watches at small scale. But they can't, if they're not telling their story, how are you supposed to know? Like, Correct. I mean, even put it this way. I was talking to somebody about Bell and Ross. And this guy was telling me that he thought Bell and Ross made as many watches as Omega. And, and I, I'm like, I'm, I'm baffled. <laughs> so he's like, he was like, well, I see them all over the place. I'm like, dude, they make they make less watches than Audemars Piguet does. Right, right, exactly. They, yeah, they make like 4,000, three or 4,000 watches a year. The problem is distribution. They 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 close out their models, and and so they end up on all these great market websites, which is you know they got to clean that up. But also, they don't tell their story. Like, they, like, uh, do you know why they make a certain watch? Like, why they make a BRO one? Yeah, I mean, I did. I mean, again, I go back with Bell and Ross till the eighties. So, I mean, I remember you know? when they were making, you know, they were making military watches, they were making pilots watches, they were making things that were basically tool watches, and you know. Yeah. It's all the instrument panel stuff that they've evolved into. But, um, you know, I remember when they were partners with Sin. You know, it's another yeah. great independence. And these companies that just, again, didn't do a great job of marketing themselves. I love Bell & Ross. And they're I think they're for dollar for No, not at all. I have two of my watch box. I love the watches. You know, you and I know the know the brand because we you know, we've worked with them and, you know, we're dealers for them. So we, we sit into the in the trainings. But, you know, and, and I can tell people on a one on one basis. But they're not out there telling their story the way that it should be done, you know, like with with a representative of the company who could be the face of the company. I feel like that's that's what needs to be done. So, for example, like Laurent Ferrier, right? I mean, his name's on the dial, right? Correct. And there are some interviews with him online. I think there's I, I found interviews with him online, 270 views. Like we're going to get uh, at least, <laughs> at, yeah, we're going to get at least 10 times that for right. this episode uh, of our podcast. And like this is like. This is a world-class uh, watchmaker who makes who makes watches that are all going to outlast all of us, right? They're going to outlive all of us, and they're, like, made by the man himself. And there's 270 views for an interview with him online. It's absurd. Yeah, it's absurd. But, I mean, again, he's an older gentleman. That's the other thing. You know, that's one of the things, like, Mo- the Moser brothers, the Gronfelds, you know, they're a little younger. They're a little hipper. They understand yeah. the importance of getting out there. And, I mean, and they're out there literally almost daily. I mean, you can't yeah. go on, uh, you know, a clubhouse, a, a chat, an interview without seeing, you know, one of the Moser boys or one of the Chrome yeah. girls. I mean, they're they're always out there, and that's huge. And it does make a difference because people then feel a connection, and like you can ask them a question online, they're going to respond to you. Oh yeah. I mean, having I mean, that that's, personal that's connection the best to thing. the watchmaker is the, absolutely the best thing. And well, you know, we got to spend me, some like, time last week with Moser brothers. They were in the office. And I mean, I spent an hour to them. And you know what we talked about the whole time? Every other brand in the industry. We didn't talk about Moser at all. Oh, yeah. It was fantastic to hear their opinion of all these other independent brands because they want to see everybody do good. Who do they think think sucks the worst? um, Not that they (laughs) suck the worst, but we did talk about Laurent Ferrier because, Uh you know, they, uh, you know, they thought they would be better positioned in the market than they are today. Um, but again, not as clear a direction. Like everybody knows what Moser is these days. You know, they took it brand that was a sleepy brand and they juiced up the dials. They had great movements already. They revolved them, but basically they went in a distinctive way that you can tell exactly what it is. They make, 
you know, about 1500 watches a year now, which is decent amount, but not huge. But again, you can see a Moser across the room. You know what it is. Yep. And it's at a price point that I think makes sense value wise. Um, some of these other brands, if they're not too small or too big, you know, you have to find that right position Sweet and you need something that's uh, distinctive enough. I think that's part of Laurent Ferrier's issue is, you know, he makes so many specialty pieces. He makes yeah. one-offs. He makes little that nobody knows exactly what a Laurent Ferrier should look like. Um, yeah. And he's making for other people instead of making for himself. The well, thing I love about – yeah. Um, his steel Ron sport Fe- watch turns out to be a, a, a $185,000 tourbillon. Uh, really? I know. $185,000 tourbillon. That probably wasn't his best play. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I like the watch, but – I like the watch, eighty five for it. No, and Not again, yet. like even there was a regular turbion is two hundred grand. I mean, it's yeah. it's nice, but it's like now you're reaching. I mean, you're gonna. That's just asking for people to take a bath on it. Yep, yeah. and that's the so, problem. So a few other brands. So, we, so Ferrier, in my opinion, is an investable. Um, yep, independent. I think if you buy some of his, like a Traveler, any of the galleys, like some of the more basic pieces that are. Definitely less than a hundred thousand, less definitely less than two hundred grand. But like in that, you know, forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollar mark, I think that there's there is an upside on that watch. And the bon- the bonus of you taking advantage of that upside is you get like an amazing watch that you might not ever want to sell anyways. Um right. just because it is it is tremendous. So other brands I've been thinking about, um, and I'll rattle off a few and you tell me what your thoughts are, right? Please. So number one is Urwork, because I think Urwerk, um it, it definitely ticks some of the boxes that you mentioned in terms of like it's it's definitely recognizable. There's no question right. what the watch is across the room. Um, right. Small company, engineering focused less than like watchmaking, right? So you know they're very into like telling the time in a certain way. Um, so Urwerk's one. Resins is one that I know you love. Also love small Resins. manufacturer. Yep. Um, for the same thing. Um, what else? Uh, there was another one that I was going to think of, but I might. I, I think MB&F. I just. Well, so MBNF is definitely one of them. Oh, like HYT, also um, Houtlands, which was making some funky watches, but also was a victim of its own, you know, distribution channels that didn't know what the hell they were doing there. Yep. So, like some of these other brands, what do you think that? So, if I told you, Mike, I want to buy into an independent, like I'm sold on independent watchmaking. I don't want to buy any of these big guys. I don't even want to buy a Rolex, an AP, or a Paddock. Definitely don't want to buy a conglomerate. So, like, what should I buy into and not take a bath in the future? What, what would yeah, you? Yeah, I mean, I think the um, I think the MBNFs are a good one. Um, I think Urwerks an interesting one because they are trading, you know, at a very low valuation. I think against retail um, yeah. and very small production and very cool. So, I think if people understand that and figure out what he's been doing, I think that's a great one. Um, Do you know how many watches he things. makes? I don't. I would assume you need to know these things. Four or five hundred, but I don't know for sure. But I will work on finding that out because that's another one that I think is um, a definite. Uh, Resonance makes standard, about, by the way. Yeah, Resonance makes these, about all these brands should have them release that the amount of watches they make, especially when they make such small numbers. I think it's important. Hundred for the appeal. Yeah. Resonance Sorry, I, I great. you Resonance. Yeah, I love Benoit. To me, is one of the nicest, coolest guys. And you want to talk about passionate. I mean, I met with him two years ago at Dubai Watch Week, and you know, he gets takes it personal when his watches don't trade on the secondary market to what he thinks they should. And I mean, I love that. And we had long yeah. conversations about it. And 
you know, he's going to make sure that he does everything to make it as good as it can be. Um, he's very protective. It's it's personal with him. I mean, he is passionate yeah. about his brand, and I love it. Um, and again, it's small. It is truly unique, uh, which well, is why I love 1500 it. Fifteen hundred a, a, a year, right? No, three hundred. Oh, oh, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, sorry. Three hundred. Yeah, yeah. There's three thousand that exists or something, right? Is Correct. That... Total. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, he's three hundred making... watches a year. Yeah, it's nothing. And they still it's... trade well below retail. It's just it's bonkers. Yep. So that's a brand that is truly unique, without a doubt. And is focused on the engineering as opposed to like the finishing side of things, right? They're making the, the coolest watches that tell you time in the most unique manner. Correct. A little bit like our work does that. MBNF has done that at times. Again, it's different ways to displace. You know, there were there were odd brands over the years who always did it. You know, you, you remember the Devon Tread and Hauntlets yeah. did a lot of that. Um, Devon Tread dead? Are they still making watches? They're still making watches. You just don't even. That's hear another them. brand. I think they make very few watches. Tim did an interview with. Um, What's the guy's name? The uh, is it Chris Devon or something like that. The uh, the owner of the brand. Really cool episode uh, uh, on Tim's podcast. And yeah, that's maybe that's another brand too. I mean, it's yeah. I mean, those are the kind of brands that are very unusual and rare yeah. and uh, to me interesting. I mean, it's it's funny you forget about like you know RM is an independent, but you know nobody yeah. thinks that's a value today. I certainly don't. No. I mean, it's like Jesus, guys. I mean, it's cool and interesting, but like. It's not all worth double retail. Here's uh, a $400,000 chronograph. Have right. <laughs> right. That if you know somebody in the store, you know, it's 160. Okay. Um, yeah, that's the I don't kind of anybody. stuff that I don't chase. I don't know anybody either. Um, but I think there's opportunities there. And then, you know, I still believe, you know, there's a little bit of opportunity in what I call brands that were independent and got swallowed. Um, you know, a lot of these brands that are group brands existed before then. And some of the stuff they did before then is collectible and is interesting. And I like that stuff. So, I mean, like, you know, I love early Vacherons. I love early, you know, Jaegers. I like some of this stuff that I love RMs that are early and nobody seems oh, to yeah. care right now except me. Um, but early I'm buying them when I find them. That's a good, I love that's them. a good thing to chase. Well, I, I had this conversation uh, with Tim actually the other day about how my favorite RM, which I had a plan to buy, and like I'm a terrible person to stick into a plan, but it was an RM16. Okay. Um, the first ultra thin. So now they have the is it the RM? Is it the 60? And so it's the tono shape ultra thin. Ultra thin, I love. It. Yeah. So so that's the one that people are paying like stupid money for. But so at the time when I wanted to buy, it was 2019. It was a thirty-five thousand dollar watch. I could find it about that. It was probably trading a little bit higher than that, but I knew some dealers. I could have got it for thirty-five k. Stupidly, I decided to buy some other watches, and so I'm like, "Hey, do I want one watch or do I for you know for 40k or whatever? Do I?" So stupidly, I made the wrong decision because right now it's like a hundred thousand dollar watch, but I I love that watch. I think the engineering there is 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 amazing. I think the fit is great, and it's not like the traditional tono shape. So I think right. there's still value in that watch specifically, even at a hundred grand, because the others trade for so so much. But I'm disappointed that it's so expensive. Um, but uh, it would, and I'm sure you're about to mention because we're talking about brands that are no longer independent but roger debuis got to be one of those two i mean it's already debuis 100 percent. i love his early stuff that's exactly where i was going next and i mean yeah i've been buying up that stuff for years now and you know now it's really starting to take off um it's a group but because again he was so cutting edge back then but still classic and that's the thing i think where jorn has taken off i think that's why ferrier has an opportunity i think it's harder for brands that are really crazy 
like that were works on MBNFs to get a broad market. Um, but like Even almost Devithun. anybody, Debathoon, again, it's, uh, some of the classic Debathoons are, it's a little tough. They're a little funky still for me. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't like those big lugs. I like his early stuff that was classics. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I know those are going to run up because just everyone's going to be piling into it. And it's just what happens. I, um, mean, I, yeah, I bought a, a white gold mono pusher, uh, or, or a mono pusher. And I think at the time, I didn't even realize it was a mono pusher chrono. Like we paid like nearly nothing for it. I thought it was just a time only. And like when we got the watch, I'm like, oh, look, this is a chronograph also. You know? <laughs> this is like 2013 or something. And now, like that that watch is, I think it's a seventy thousand dollars watch now. I think we bought it for like fifteen grand at that time. Yep. We were just taking a flyer at fifteen. Also, we had no clue what we were going to sell it for. Um, yeah, no, those early runs that we've done yeah. great. And again, true independence back in the day. Daniel Roth, same kind of thing. You know, great. was a great independent. Then got swallowed up uh, by Bulgari. But I think you know, like Bulgari's done a decent job with their watch business for not being oh, yeah. a watchmaker. You know what I mean? I mean because he they bought up cool watchmakers and you know did away kind of yeah genta exactly the same kind of thing but those early independents that don't exist anymore there are definitely opportunities there um yeah i love some of that stuff what do you think about like brands like nomos then where it's not like they're they're like a lower end but they're still independent it's like bell and ross nomos uh i mean i guess even grand seiko i guess it's funny. I was when I was making some notes earlier today. I was, I jotted down Grand Seiko because yeah. you know it's a big business, but Grand Seiko is definitely an independent, and you know Creador makes incredible watches. Oh yeah, um, and it's literally a very separate division that they keep totally independent. Um, and I think those have a huge opportunity to go up um, because the quality and the finish is as good as anything in the market. And oh, even yeah. if I had a conversation with DeFour about that specifically. Really? You know, his favorite two brands are Longa and Creador. Really? Yeah. Does he own a Creador? He does not own one, but he uh. loves them. He's been there. He talks about it. The you know, the Japanese technique there, you know, if you think about it, it makes perfect sense because you know, the Japanese were always perfectionists. Mm-hmm. You know, be it a sword, be it a whatever, you know, part of the culture, was, right? Exactly. Part of the culture is that you know, real patience and real quality. So I think that's sure. an, another one that's an interesting brand for people to look at. Well, we know he owns a he owns a Longa. That's for sure. He does own the Longa, yes. Yeah. And was it well? So Longa also. I mean, what about early Longa? So they. Well, I guess they. I don't know. I mean, that, they were uh, independent for sure. They were right. They were independent. They got uh, they got bought up by Richemont, but I mean they were. They were definitely an independent and they did a great job starting off and their early stuff definitely. I mean, all the early Longa ones have gone up a lot in the last year, but there's still, because there's so few of them out there, um, you know, the Lumens, the specialty pieces are starting to take off. But, uh, you know, even at at their peak, they did five or 5,500 watches a year. So there's more of them out there than some of these real small ones. But when you get into the specific models, very few. But again, oh, I've man. had fights with them all the time because they will not release um, quantities, and I've argued with them for the last two years because I talk benefit. to them regularly. I've, I understand that, and you understand that, but yeah. uh, you know, corporate does not believe in it. So, like, it makes sense that Rolex doesn't, right? Because no, nobody wants to hear that Rolex is making a million watches. <laughs> like, if you're making four or five thousand watches in a year, like right. something to scream from the rafters, from as far as we're concerned. 
Yeah, yeah, especially with the way that they make it, this whole thing. So, but uh, what year did do you know what year Richemont bought Longa? Uh, in the nineties, had to be right. Had to be, yeah, had to be. I don't know exactly. Yeah, because I think uh, if I remember correctly, unfortunately, I don't have off the top of my head, but what they they incorporated, they reincorporated or whatever, like the year after the Berlin Wall fell or something like that, right? Is that correct? Is that yeah, story? I mean, they came back in '91. They were restarted in '94. Um, okay. They bought. It was part of a group. Another company owned them called Manisman bought them and uh-huh. they owned IWC Jaeger and Langa and they sold that all to Richemont. Uh, I want to say it so, was right around 2000. But so it even so then so like that could so in terms of independence, because that's that I didn't even think about that as a, as part of this topic. But like finding watches from the brands when they were smaller or when they were independents. Right. So IWC is also another one there. You get like a, a mid 90s IWC. Oh yeah, no. I mean, if you look at some of the early IWCs, because you know when the um, when Longa started, you know a lot of the people came from IWC who started it. Uh, yeah, that's where the you know the history was. That's where the background was. That's where they you know when IWC made their Scudiera, their high complications when they were coming back. You know that stuff was all made by Renault and Papi for IWC and then they started making stuff for, you know, the Turbograph was made by them for Alanga. Um because these are the guys who who did it. You know, Gunter Blumheim, makes Yeah, Gunter Blumheim the, was the head of IWC left and went to start up Alanga and then, wow. you know, went through and built the company. Unfortunately, well, left then then I, I guess in that in that same vein then like a pre Vendome Panerai I guess would would qualify though if we're ranking Investable <laughs> future investables. Panerai is going to be at the bottom. Listen, they, I know this. They, they got hot for a while. They really did. Those pre-bond yeah. were worth a fortune for a very small time, but they were. Yeah. Now, well, now that fortune is worth is less now. But uh, I mean, I have a, I have a. Uh, well, it's not pre-bond but it's a, uh, uh, an A series, Luminor that's well probably worth less than I pay, even though I really didn't pay much for it. Though there's a whole story behind that, but. Yeah, my all my panorays are worth less than I paid. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, in the Panerai history and the story, I mean, when people do realize, you know, uh, enough people don't talk about it enough because it's become mainstream. But like when Panerai started, I mean, we all thought it was the craziest thing ever. You know, who on God's green earth is going to want a 44 millimeter watch? And, you know, but I mean, the first year or two, it was a struggle. I'll be honest. I mean, we were one of the early really? dealers and, you know, there were 12 dealers in the U.S. and. We used to call it the boomerang watch because half of them you, you know, <laughs> went out, came back. <laughs> uh, that's funny. Yeah, I mean, it probably still is the case. I mean, a lot of time I do sell them, and they, they, hey, listen, it's just I love the watch; it's just too big. You know, yeah, though so it's just they have kind of corrected that a little bit. They have. All right, that's but I mean, again, they were they were tangent, but they were independent from their vision of the, what they were making, and I love that part of it. I do love when guys try to reinvent things, um, be it the way it's presented, be it the way it's made. So there's so much creativity coming out of these small brands. I mean, I laughed. I'm going to be doing on Market Wrap. You know, we had a new introduction from Paddock last week. And, you, and we're all excited because they put two more green, green dial, dial watches on the market. It's like, <laughs> really? That's your idea of creativity and launches? and Stainless like steel this, green. Stainless steel green. I got an idea, boss. I mean, it's like, come on. You can do better. Well, I mean, well – it's going to trade for half a million bucks. So like, what? it is, I mean, I guess, I guess I understand financially it's going to be all over the place and everyone's going to demand it, but it's like, I just think 
that we have an opportunity in this industry and there's so many now independents who can do this and I love seeing them do this to really create and yeah. to be creative and to make their own mark like a Moser has, like an MBNF has, like a, you know, RM did, you know, they, they broke ground in different areas. And I think yeah. that's what you want to look for is a brand that's truly distinctive, that has a passion of somebody's personal, you know, a guy who stays up nights, like it gives me great comfort knowing that somebody's in Switzerland not sleeping because he's worried about making his watch better yeah. and making it more interesting and making it so the world's going to want it. And I love that part of independence. Yeah, I think I, I would agree with you. In fact, well, so we'll, we'll end on this because we're, we're running up to the end of this. But um, and you'll give me your thoughts on this. So there's there are some now there are more and more brands, very small manufacturers making less than 100 watches a year. They're doing bespoke watches, which I think you kind of touched on it a little bit earlier in I terms did. of Laurent Ferrier. So it doesn't. I doubt you, you you're going to love it. But um, so, and I'll tell you why I asked this because, uh, um, oh Lord, I'm, I'm I'm blanking on the on the name. Oh Garrick. So Garrick is a brand that I one night I was on the phone with a buddy of mine, watch guy. Might have been it. Might have been inebriated. Scrolled right. through Instagram. Possibly. Oh my God, look at this thing! And I sent him over the S4. Right, which is like their engine turn uh, dial. It's it's amazing. So I sent it over to him. I go, wow, look at this thing. And he goes, yeah, can you believe how cheap they are? And I go, what? What are you talking about? So I go to their website. I find out I can buy a watch from them, a bespoke watch for like $4,500. And it's totally in-house, completely right. from start to finish. It's made out of the UK. Tim did a, uh, a podcast. Well, this is part of the story. So again, I'm, I'm up late night, texting, whatever. So I forward Tim a picture of a watch and I say, hey, what do you think about this watch? Or what do you, do you know? Any, have, you, have you heard about this watch? So he replies back. He replies back with a link, a YouTube link to an unpublished video. He goes, I did, <laughs> I did an interview with the owner of the, of uh, the brand today. So I got to watch that, <laughs> fell in love with it, placed an order. The next day I got a call from the owner of the brand. Right. Um, I forgot his last name. His first name is David. And I had literally had like an hour long talk with the guy. He was asking me everything that I wanted about the watch. I ended up buying their, their base model to the Norfolk, which is like a, it's an enamel dial. It's absolutely beautiful. Blue, like a light blue dial, which uh, he hinted at it being discontinued is the reason why I picked right. that one over the S4. I'll probably end up getting the S4. But, um, but so, and there's Satori Bellard. There's a few of these brands out there that are making their watches where like, so they say, Hey, you can have this watch, but you can pick the dial color. You can pick some of the design, maybe what it says on the dial, things like that. So what do you think about those? Do you think that those are investable or is, am I buying that watch just for me? Or can I, do you think I'll be able to, I think you're buying it just for you because in my opinion, if, if they're making it bespoke, then I want to make mine. I don't want yours. I don't want your hand me down. I like, I like brands, honestly, that look you in the eye and say, I made it this way. This is the way it should be. And this is why. And that have such a passion about it and kind of, almost a little arrogance, which I love with watchmakers because my dad was a watchmaker and watchmakers by nature are incredibly arrogant and talented. Um, but I love that passion and I want them to tell me what it should be. Not, you know, what some knucklehead just because you have money should be able to decide what it is. And that's what I have a problem with, you know, the Voodalanians of the world and Lauren Ferries who will make anything if you write a big enough check. And I just think well, that Jordan doesn't help that. the brand. Oh, Jordan used to do it too. I mean, Paddock did it back in the 70s and 80s. I mean, if you were the, you know, the prince of Saudi Arabia, you got anything you wanted from Paddock. And they would make one-ofs all day long until they realized what they were doing. 
um, and that they don't do that really anymore. So I really think I like the fact that a brand should stand for something and the guy who owns that brand should tell us what it is and convince us that it's what we need to have as opposed to letting me decide because, hey, you, you're probably better at it than I'll be. Sure. Okay. I, I can agree with that. I'm still, I still bought the watch. I wait. I love it. it. I can't wait to see it. Well, so, uh, Garrick, they said that they make about 50 to 60 watches a year. And, um, and so he told me it'd be 16 weeks when I ordered the watch. It's, I think 16 weeks is this week. So I'm not getting it. He said, it's going to be a little bit longer supply chain issues, but also he said that he, he stopped taking orders right now because they don't, they, they, they're at capacity. So that's awesome. Hey, Good for him. I love it. Well, just right, like, send me a link. I'll check it out. Yeah, I'll, I'll send you a picture of the watch when it comes in. But it's uh, or maybe I'll wear it up to Philly when I come see you. But it's it's interesting to me, and I think that for me in the at like because I do get tired of my watches. Like, there's very few watches I've kept from the very beginning. So even that watch, uh, you know, if I have it for four or five years and I want to trade it in, hopefully I'll be able to get some sort of value because maybe I want to buy another one of his watches and I don't want to I don't want to be heavy. I don't want to have six Garrick watches, maybe. Or like, like right. a, I already have five Panerais. I probably shouldn't have that, right? So, like, correct. I don't want to get stuck in too many of these brands. That you know, that's that's I guess the idea. But um, all right. Well, so, so awesome. Tori Villard, have you have you looked at them at all? Uh, I've looked at them a couple at times. I don't really know too much about it though. Okay. Yeah, it's just it, similar idea. That they're very. Um, it's it's all about the dials versus Tori Villard. I like their to be honest with you, I like their builds a little bit better. Garrick is more of a traditional, so it has like a big round onion crown, and it's a little bit more traditional. Whereas Tori Villard's a little sportier. But I like the idea of, and I like talking to the CEO of Garrick, so I decided to spend my money with him, and maybe my next one will be a Satari, and maybe I'll sell my all my you know big name watches and only buy these. Small independence. I love it. Yeah. But all right. Well, uh, thanks, Mandrus. I appreciate you doing this with me. We're running up on an hour. We said we're going to do 30 minutes. We're almost an hour. That's what happens. Yeah, always, man. When you and I get Get together. So I appreciate that. I love it. Thank you so much. Um, Guys, I look forward to having you on Market Wrap again. Oh, yeah. We'll definitely do that. So, again, Mike Mandrus is uh, from Market Wrap fame every Saturday morning at, uh, I think it's like 7 a.m. It pops up. I I would watch it. Yeah, my daughter, my 18-month-old daughter looks and she points at it. She knows what it is. It's good, man. If you guys want to know what's going on in the market each week, if you want to know what, what Mandos is up to in terms of trading, because I, I, at this point, uh, in terms of the amount of watches you're in charge of every month, you might be the number one trader on the planet, man. Like, like you're, I mean, you know, you're in charge of what we have almost 40 traders and uh, plus all the watches that you're personally buying and trading. I mean, you might – you might be moving more watches than anybody on the planet. So uh, we have our fun. We definitely have our fun. Yeah. So it's, it's so check check Mandos out there. If, if somebody wants to reach out to you directly, what is it? it what's the best way? Uh, Instagram or don't Instagram's do it. Instagram's great. Okay. Absolutely, okay. I do Instagram for sure. I don't do a okay. post a lot, but I'll respond to anything. Okay. And uh, I think it's my, my underscore Mandos. Correct. Right? And on YouTube, I get a lot of comments that I always love responding to. With oh yeah. The, uh, yeah. If, you, if you want to abuse Mandos, go on. People make fun of me all the time. It's great fun. Yeah, it's awesome. So, guys, you can check me out on Instagram at Mr. Thanos, M-R-T-H-A-N-O-S. You can reach out to me directly. Um, check out our our uh, YouTube channel at uh, – or sorry, the YouTube channel is Watchbox Studios, which is where Mandos the show, and then Watchbox Reviews for all the hands-on reviews from Tim Masso. Yep. Um, yeah, and uh, make sure you subscribe to this podcast. And, guys, if you're listening – 55 minutes into it, we love you. You're champions. We appreciate <laughs> it. And we'll Thanks see you next Tuesday. Adios. Awesome. Adios. Bye-bye. Thanks, Josh. Hey.
Mm-hmm.